Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 to 20. Before we actually look at the passage, I'm going to give you a little quiz, okay? Um, I'm going to read a quote from a movie, and I'm going to see who can uh, name the movie, all right? And because this is all happening digitally, as soon as you know the answer, you can just shout it out. You're not going to ruin it for anybody other than who you're in the room with. Or if you want, you know, to really savor your victory, you can just go ahead and, and uh, pause me at any time and uh, share the answer with your group. Okay, so feel free to do that. I'll read the quote kind of progressively um, so that maybe, you know, some of you real movie buffs can, can place it earlier on. And then the rest of you will probably catch on as the quote develops. Okay, so here it is. They bought it. Anybody? You'd have to be really good to get it just from that. Okay, I'll keep going. They bought it. Incredible. One of the worst performances of my career, and they never doubted it for a second. Maybe some of you can get it from that. If you can, again, go ahead, pause me. Savor your victory with those that you're with. If not, I'll read one more line. And if you weren't going to get, if, you're, if you can't get it from this line, you probably were never going to get it. I'm sorry to tell you, but here it is. I'll read the whole thing. They bought it. Incredible. One of the worst performances of my career, and they never doubted it for a second. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? The answer, of course, is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And if you've seen Ferris Bueller, you know that the movie kind of, this is right at the start of the movie, but the movie really begins, it, it launches right into the action. The opening uh, shot is of Ferris's house, and we hear dialogue going on inside the house. Ferris telling his parents how ill he's feeling. And then we see some of that conversation, you know, the clammy hands and all of that. And we kind of don't know whether to believe Ferris or not until Jeannie, his sister, you know, comes into the doorway and she immediately smells a scam. Um, but again, we're not sure is Ferris telling the truth or not until we see him, you know, sort of wink at his sister mischievously behind his parents' back. Um, and eventually he does indeed, as you know, uh, convince them that he should stay home. He just, he needs to. Um, and uh, so they leave and then all of a sudden Ferris sits up in his bed, looks at the camera and talks to us. Um, in theatrical terms, this is breaking the fourth wall. He speaks to us as the audience. And he shares a little bit of his motivations, why he's doing what he's doing. The quote I just read for you comes from this little moment where he speaks directly to us. And we, we get to know Ferris a little bit. You know, if it weren't for this moment where he talks to us, we, I think we'd like Ferris a lot less in the movie. Maybe you still don't like him. Um, but by having this little moment with us, he kind of shares where he's coming from a little bit. And he gives, in this little um, aside to the camera, to you and I, the audience, he gives what I would consider sort of the thesis of the movie. He says, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. Now, I think that in a sense, this is what, this is sort of what we see happening in our passage this morning. And you might say, wow, this is going to be interesting to see you connect Ferris Bueller and the Sermon on the Mount. But, but hear me out, okay? Let's, let's consider this for a second. 
Let's give some context. Some of this Matt shared last week, and some of it uh, was shared before that, and some of this might very well be new to you, okay? Some context. Matthew's gospel has five big blocks of teaching in it. In some ways, that's how Matthew orients his his whole gospel, is around these five blocks of teaching, or sermons, really, from Jesus. And the Sermon on the Mount is the first of these five sermons. And many scholars would agree that it's Jesus' most important uh, section of teaching in all of the Gospels. And how does it begin? It begins, as as Matt uh, told us a a number of weeks ago now, Jesus um, ascends a mountain and sits down. And we understand that this means that Jesus is about to give an authoritative teaching. But then Jesus launches right in to the Beatitudes. These massive, glorious, somewhat preposterous, hard to understand sayings about what his disciples, who they will be, what they'll look like. And it says, if at the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus understands that uh, the crowds minds are probably just swimming, swirling around with what he's just said. See, if we, if we back up a little bit more, Jesus has been, you know, prior to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been doing ministry in Galilee, as Matthew tells us, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and doing works of healing. And then he goes up onto a mountain, as we said, and sits down. And so the crowd, it's hearing Jesus' words, is likely just, you know, amazed at what's happening and unsure, you know, how are we to think of you, Jesus? Is, how are we to think of your words here? Is this a new law? Are you a new law giver? You know, how do we make sense of this? Equally, Matthew, the, the writer of this gospel, likely understands that some of his readers are having those very same questions. You see, it would be easy for us to miss, I mean, particularly because we jumped into this series right at the beginning of the Beatitudes, but there are some startling parallels in Matthew's gospel in uh, the chapters leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. There are some startling parallels between the life of Jesus and the life of Moses back in the Old Testament. Let me give, me, let me give you some examples of this. Both with Jesus and Moses, there's sort of these miraculous events surrounding their infancies. Think of uh, Moses journeying down the river in a basket, Jesus being born of a virgin. Both Jesus and Moses caused turmoil with rulers of the land, Pharaoh and Herod. Both of them survive a massacre of other children. Both of them have, have this journey to and from, ex, uh, from Egypt, rather. Both spend uh, formative time in the wilderness. And both, you know, have this formative teaching delivered from a mountain. And so Jesus makes some of his most shocking and wonderful statements, the Beatitudes. And it's as though then he, he steps back to tell us a little bit more about who he is, and who he's not, and what that means for us. It has a little bit of a a feel of an aside, as we talked about back in the movie Ferris Bueller that we were thinking about. I mean, Jesus begins by saying, do not think. It's like, hey, let me just clarify something. You might be thinking, but, but let me clarify. And indeed, here as well as 
in Ferris Bueller in that little opening moment, we do get a thesis of sorts about what's to come in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. See, as Matt said, if the Beatitudes help us understand who we are as followers of Jesus, and the salt and light passage we looked at last week tells us what we are, then the rest of the sermon answers the question, how? Okay, how? How do we live in light of who we are? And our passage kind of gives a a thesis for that, an introduction to the rest of the sermon on the mount. And our passage this, uh, this morning, again, if you're watching this in the morning, falls into sort of two sections, two halves. The first is Jesus talking about who he is. Who he is. And secondly, what this means for you and I. Okay? So with that, let's dive into our passage. Look at verse 17 with me. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So let's take a, a minute or two here and break down some of the, the, the phrases or expressions or terms that Jesus uses in these verses, okay? Again, we, we talked about do not think, Jesus beginning this way. It's, it's, you know, has that feeling of a little bit of an aside, um, he's, he's clarifying something for us. He knows that we might be thinking something, and so he wants to clear up any confusion. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, this would be easy for us to, to miss, but the law or the prophets, you know, we might just think, oh, he's talking about, you know, the law in, in the Old Testament and then also the, the prophets sections. But this was actually a, a phrase, an expression, used to refer to all of the Hebrew scriptures what we would now call the Old Testament. Okay, so it's meant to refer to all of the Hebrew Bible. And Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. What does abolish mean? It it means what we generally think or use it to mean. uh, To do away with something, to invalidate something. But then Jesus makes us this interesting statement. Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, what does fulfill mean? If, if you're like me, if you've ever read this passage before, maybe you're, you have, uh, your mind has done a little, a little trick on you, okay? What I mean is, I think at times when I've read this passage, I've just kind of shifted what Jesus says in my mind to, to believe that what he's saying is, hey, I haven't come to abolish the law, and I'm going to do the opposite. Something like preserve it, you know, you know keep it intact. I'm not coming to, to uh, do away with it, I'm coming to, to, to keep it. But this actually isn't what Jesus says. This isn't what fulfill means. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. They're not opposites in that sense. So, so what does fulfill mean? How do we understand what Jesus is saying? Well, we'll come back to this in a second. It's important for everything, really everything that Jesus says in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, for us to really understand what he means there. But for now, let's just summarize um, these first, uh, this first verse. Jesus is telling the crowd, these things that you've seen me doing, you know, the, the, the gospel of the kingdom I've been proclaiming, the kind of people I just described in the Beatitudes, this isn't a different thing. 
It's what all of the scriptures have been building towards. And I am the fulfillment of all of it. Let's look at verse 18. He goes on, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. I, I often think when, when uh, a scripture, an author of the scripture says, For truly I say to you, they're, it's like they're doubling down on something they've just said. And this is Jesus doubling down. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, What do those terms mean? Those are likely not uh, immediately clear to us. If you have a study Bible, it certainly will have a little note on this. An iota is the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. And a dot is referring likewise to to just a small little mark um, used to distinguish two very similar letters. Think, for example, of our um, capital Q as distinguished from a capital O. It's just that small little mark distinguishing those two letters. And so Jesus is saying, not even the smallest part of the law will be scratched from the record until all is accomplished. He adds that interesting qualification. Now, if you've spent much time in the Gospels, it would be very natural and understandable for you to be feeling a little bit of confusion at this point. Because there are certainly moments in the Gospels where it feels as though abolishing or invalidating is exactly what Jesus is doing. Think, for example, about some of his interactions with religious leaders around the Sabbath or regulations about food. And then many of the other New Testament writers seem to pick up on this theme and push it even further. So how do we understand this? How do we make sense of Jesus' words? Well, we need to go back to that word that we sort of put on pause what it means for Jesus to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We need to understand that in order to make sense of everything else that Jesus says. And to do that, we're going to think for a few minutes in sort of a big picture sense about the Old Testament. We're going to spend some time thinking about the Old Testament as a whole, the law and prophets. But before we do that, I want to take a quick pause. I want you to very quickly think about how you're feeling after what I've just said. That we're going to go leave Matthew for a moment. We're going to go back to the Old Testament. Maybe you don't feel anything, and that's perfectly fine. Maybe, though, you rolled your eyes a little bit, either physically or maybe you had a little bit more restraint and you just kept it internally. There's this unfortunate uh, trend or, uh, yeah, trend that can happen in, frankly, a lot, lots of sort of evangelical Protestant circles where we would be perfectly content to spend all of our time in this half of our Bible. And if we could take this, you know, two-thirds really, out and set it on a shelf somewhere and just go there, you know, when you know, we were doing a Bible reading plan or something, that would be just fine with us. But frankly, friends, if, if we're going to take Jesus seriously, then that option is not available to us. If what Jesus says is true, then this entire book from beginning to end has a word to speak for us and is relevant and authoritative for us today. And so pay attention to whatever reaction you have. It's important to acknowledge that. 
as we continue on in our passage this morning. So, how is Jesus the fulfillment of the Old Testament? Let's break this down into some maybe, maybe some more understandable units. Uh, some of the genres of the Old Testament. For example, let's, let's start with the prophets. In many ways, this is the most um, easily understood, that Jesus is the fulfillment of what the prophets foretold. And again, we jumped into Matthew's gospel right at the start of the Beatitudes, but throughout his gospel, and even already up to this point, just, just chapter 5, he's gone to great pains, great lengths, to show how Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of all that the prophets foretold. Let's look at some examples here quickly. Back in Matthew chapter 2, the wise men come to Herod and say, we, you know, we've seen the star. Where's uh, he who is to be the king of the Jews? Like, where would we find him? And Herod says, well, I, I don't really know. So look at verses 4 to 6. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's a quote from the prophet Micah. Later on in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Joseph has just been warned in a dream about this massacre that Herod is planning. And it says this, He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Quote from Hosea. Then again, just summarizing some of these. After that massacre is perpetrated, and there's weeping, we're told that this also fulfills what was spoken by the prophets. Jesus' return to Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. The ministry of John the Baptist fulfilling a prophecy spoken by Isaiah. Jesus' journey to Capernaum, likewise, fulfilling uh, what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the prophets foretold. And though this should not uh, cease to amaze us, the, the myriad ways that Jesus it fulfills what was spoken of him hundreds of years prior, though that should amaze us, it, it's not particularly hard to understand, at least in principle, Jesus being the fulfillment of all that the prophets foretold. But what does it mean? It's a little harder to understand. What does it mean that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law? Well, this is true, friends, in two senses, both of which are important and relevant to us. The first, Jesus was the only one of us to perfectly keep the commands of God. And crucially, this is so important, he did it not just in outward expression, but in the condition of his heart. Right? That was the critique that Jesus had for so many of the religious leaders was they seemed to manage their behavior well, but their hearts were not oriented towards God. We spent time talking about this back in the Beatitudes. Jesus was the only one of us to perfectly keep the commands of God, both in outward expression and in the orientation of his heart. And Jesus seemed to understand that this was part of his mission here on the earth. Let's look at Matthew 3, verses 13 to 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? 
But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. The second sense, though, in which Jesus fulfills the law is that he fulfills what it requires of you and I. What do I mean when I say this? I think uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says it better than I can, so let's read what he writes. One of the ways in which the law has to be fulfilled is that its punishment of sin must be carried out. This punishment is death, and that was why he died. The law must be fulfilled. He goes on, In respect of its punishment of sin, God's law has been fulfilled absolutely because he's punished sin in the holy spotless, blameless body of his own son there upon the cross on Calvary's hill. Jesus is the fulfillment, friends, of the law. Let's consider one more uh, big section of the Old Testament, what is often called the wisdom literature. Now, you might not be familiar with that term or what that refers to. Think of books like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, books that talk about the wisdom of God applied to our everyday lives. Just as Jesus was the fulfillment of the whole of Old Testament prophecy, and just as he perfectly fulfills the law, both in its righteous requirements and in taking its consequences for you and I, so too he was the embodiment of the wisdom expounded by Solomon and others. Craig Bartholomew and Ryan O'Dowd talk about this in their book, Old Testament Wisdom Literature. Most of the book is spent back in the Old Testament, um, helping uh, readers understand the, the wisdom literature better. But they have one chapter where they talk about Jesus as the wisdom of God. And, and in that, there's actually a section focusing on Matthew's gospel. And so I want to read a little bit of that. And, and this is actually in their discussion of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, Here's what they say. Implicit is that Jesus is himself Lady Wisdom. He is Wisdom Incarnate, so that the wise person builds his or her house on his teaching. Now, you may be very confused by that. Jesus is Lady Wisdom. What are we talking about here? Lady Wisdom is this personification in the Old Testament of God's wisdom, talked about in the form of this wise woman. And what these authors, Bartholomew and O'Dowd, are saying here is that that, that that wisdom of God is on display in the person of Jesus. They continue on and explain this further. Let's read again. And this is a long quote, friends, but this is so good. The incarnation signals a dramatic shift in the storyline of the Bible. Wisdom in the Old Testament focuses on the created order, in other words, the physical world, what can be called God's structure for the world. But it does not give attention to the overarching direction for the creation, how the world will move from creation to fall and back to a redeemed new creation again. Wisdom in the New Testament affirms the creation order of the Old Testament, but it focuses it historically in the mystery of God's purposes bound up in Jesus, the agent who saves creation and leads it to the destiny God always intended for it. 
Wow. Let me read one section of that again. Wisdom in the New Testament affirms the creation order of the Old Testament, but it focuses it historically in the mystery of God's purposes bound up in Jesus, the agent who saves creation and leads it to the destiny God always intended for it. Amen. This is it, friends. All of Old Testament wisdom is is bound up and focused in Jesus, along with every other iota and dot in the scriptures. It all points to Jesus and finds fulfillment in him. And so now, as I said, we would return to this question of what does this mean for you and I? What does this mean for us? But before we do that, I want to take another moment to have you reflect on this question, okay? Are you the kind of person who prefers to have rules and guidelines clearly laid out for you? You know, just just give me the rules and I'll keep them. Or are you the kind of person who, who really bristles when someone tells you what to do? You're an independent person. You want to find your own way. We all know that it's very likely, if you're uncertain which of these you are, that probably the last year and, you know, some of the guidelines given by uh, public health and others have probably brought out whichever of these you are, okay? So if you need a hint, maybe think about that for a moment. So I want you to take, we're going to put three minutes on the clock. I want you to take one and just kind of reflect for yourself and then take a couple of minutes and share with uh, whoever you're with. Go ahead. Let's jump back in and the context for that question that I just had you reflect on will become a little bit clearer here, okay? Let's look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa, big words. Let's, uh, let's, again, break this down and understand some of the expressions and words that Jesus uses. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. Relaxes just means to fail to conform to what that commandment asks of us with the implication that, you know, it's, it's not valid. I'm not going to do it. It's not valid. What does Jesus mean when he says the least of these commandments? Well, this actually does reflect a Jewish uh, sort of tradition of ranking the priority of the commandments in the Torah. And that's actually a a tradition or a practice which Jesus sort of implicitly endorses in the Gospels. Think about about this passage with this verse in it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. It's understanding that, you know, there is... More important commandments. But, but, lest we think this, you know, lets us off the hook in some way, it doesn't. Because Jesus here rebukes anyone who relaxes on even the least of the commandments. So he says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. What is this whole least in the kingdom, greatest in the kingdom? What, what does this mean? 
to focus on this and, you know, go down this rabbit trail of, oh, okay, so I can sort of, you know, not keep the commandments, but still be in the kingdom. I'll just be the least, you know, but I don't need to be greatest. I'm content with being the least. I just want to be in. Like, that's missing the forest for the trees, friends. Uh, that's the wrong question. Because, you know, in just a moment, or in, a, in the next verse, Jesus, in fact, talks about people who, based on their sort of approach to him and the commands, won't enter the kingdom at all, okay? So focusing on, oh, how, how do I just, you know, do enough to be the least? I don't need to be great. That's, that's missing the point entirely. And so how does the verses that we just read a moment ago, how do they clarify these verses here, verses 19 and 20? Let's think about that for a moment. If all of Scripture points to Jesus and is fulfilled in him, then Jesus has all the authority. And if he has all the authority and he says that not the smallest mark is to be removed from the law, then we best not relax a single one of these commandments. Now, make no mistake, some of the ways that we live out the commands of Scripture, some of the ways that those will uh, affect our daily lives, certainly are transformed by the work of Jesus. For example, a great deal of time is spent in the book of Hebrews on helping us understand how Jesus is our once-for-all sacrifice for sin. As Again, as Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about in that quote we read a moment ago. And so as a result, we don't go and make regular sacrifices at the temple today. But this does not mean that then we go back and say, all right, uh, I'm going to take those sections of Exodus and Leviticus and toss them out. We're good. Scripture in its entirety still has authority over our lives. One of the main purposes of those regular sacrifices talked about in the Old Testament were to remind the Israelites of the seriousness of their sin. Would you say that that's still relevant for us today? I think so. I think so. You and I still need those reminders. That's part of the reason that we come to the communion table regularly to be reminded of the significance of our sin and how great a debt Jesus took on our behalf. And so the passages dedicated to sacrifice in the Torah give us that context, give us that understanding, help us to recognize just how great the weight of our sin is, how great a debt we owed. Still have a word to say to us today, friends. Then Jesus, in verse 20, he doubles down again. Look what he says. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the uh, scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this, on its surface, is scary. The scribes and the Pharisees were considered by the Jews to be those who cared about the law the most. It was literally their job to learn it, copy it, keep it, and to teach it. And we have to be better? We have to be better than that? I want to ask you, what's, what's happening in your heart in this moment? How are you feeling? What, is this, what does this do to your emotions? Maybe you feel this eagerness, like, let, let me at it. 
I will show that I can be as good as I need to be. Maybe you feel this fear or this dread in the pit of your stomach, this sense, I cannot live up to what's being asked of me. Maybe you simply feel an apathy. You struggle to to get yourself to care at all. Pay attention to how you're feeling, friends. But thankfully, it's what, frankly, feels like the most daunting statement in this whole passage, that we need to fear the least. Doesn't mean it's not significant, but we've already done the, the surgery on our hearts, if you will, back in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will see God. Blessed are those who are helpless without God's help. Because God is going to help them. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Right relationship with God and others. They recognize that they cannot accomplish that for themselves. And so God will accomplish it for them. They will be satisfied. They will be filled. And so now we ask the question, well then what's the point of what Jesus says here? Is he simply reteaching us something he already taught us back in the Beatitudes? I don't think so. Let's think about the whole of Jesus, his flow of thought through this whole passage. He begins, the whole thing is about him. The whole thing is about Jesus. All of the scriptures revolve around him. All of human history is bound up in him. And he has all the authority. He is Lord. The kind of person that the Beatitudes describe is one who is in deep, intimate relationship with Jesus. And finally, a person in deep, intimate relationship with Jesus wants to be like him, wants to be close to him. And how do we do that? How do we do that? We look to the scriptures and pattern our lives after the kind of life that the scriptures invites us to live. We, need, we can only do that with the Holy Spirit's help. And in the coming verses, friends, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us concrete examples of how to do this, what this kind of life looks like in, in everyday living. When you're feeling angry, What does it mean to pattern your life after what the scriptures teach us? When your marriage is in trouble, when you want to retaliate against someone who's hurt you, Jesus gives us insight into what it means how to live as the kind of people that the Beatitudes, the kind of disciple that that paints. And lastly, as we end here, this confronts, these these words of Jesus, they confront both the types of people that I asked you about earlier. See, those of us who just want to be given a list of rules to follow, just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. You know, those were the scribes and the Pharisees, and they were rebuked over and over and over again by Jesus. See, we weren't created, friends, to follow a list of rules. Some of you might balk at that. We were meant to be in a loving relationship with our Creator. 
and to find our greatest joy because of that relationship, to find our greatest joy in living the way that the Creator intended. In other words, our obedience was always meant to flow out of loving, deep relationship. Not obedience, being good, generating love in relationship. No. But likewise, Jesus' words also confront those of us who bristle at someone telling us what to do. And tragically, Christians, or people claiming to be Christians for centuries, have pointed to Jesus and taken some of the words of Paul and twisted them around and said, See, I have freedom. All things are lawful for me. I have freedom in Christ. And I can live how I want. Guess what, friends? Jesus is still Lord. All of Scripture points to Him, finds its fulfillment in Him. As Lord of your life, He has absolute authority to ask anything of you. And if you love Him, you will find no greater joy than in obedience to His will. No greater joy. We see this whole train of thought, friends, brought out again at the end of Matthew's gospel. And that's how I want us to finish our time together. Let's read this passage. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus' final words to his disciples in Matthew's gospel. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to do all that I have commanded you. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, obey the, the words that I give you. But he ends on this promise, the glorious promise. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are together. I am with you. I love you. I'm going to empower you to live this life, the kind of life that the Beatitudes paint. I'm with you. I'm for you. Let's pray. Jesus, when we read about the kind of people that the Beatitudes talk about, I know I my heart is stirred. But then at times when I find myself sort of in the pages of Scripture, I, I lose sight of how I can ever be this kind of person. But I thank you that you promise that you are with us. And it's because of your presence through your Spirit in our lives that we have the power to be these kinds of people, to live this kind of life for a watching world and for your glory. We love you, Jesus. Fill us. Fill us with your presence so that we may be more like you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.